Welcome to Mosaic Podcasts. We hope you enjoy the following recording from Mosaic Church, Leeds, based in the United Kingdom. For more podcasts and information on Mosaic Church, please visit mosaic-church.org.uk. Thank you for listening. I'd like you to turn to the people next to you, and I'd like you to tell them who your heroes are. You can just think of one. Who's your hero in life? Oh, people are, people are looking like I have no idea. Good job. If your dad is in the room, you should have said them, okay? You should have said there. It's too late now, but you should have gone there. So my opinion is this. God loves to use heroes to inspire his people to follow him. There are countless heroes in the Bible. There's even a whole chapter, Hebrews chapter 11 of the Bible, that's dedicated to inspirational men and women. And so what we thought it would be fun to do as a church is just over the summer, just take a few of our heroes and their favorite verses from the Bible and then share them with you for the sole purpose of inspiring you uh, to seek after God and his purposes in your life as they did. And so today we're going to spend some time looking uh, at a man from Yorkshire. So we're very happy about this, and he spent his life, are you laughing at my accent? Yeah, thanks. Uh, He spent uh, most of his life pursuing the most outrageous vision. He was desperate to see every province in China, around 400 million people at the time, reach with the good news of Jesus Christ. His name was Hudson Taylor, and this is the fine-looking gentleman, that is Hudson Taylor. And I've got three sort of fascinating moments of his life that uh, I hope that we can learn from today. And so number one, I want to talk to you about teenage conversion. Hudson was born in Barnsley in 1832 into a Christian family. And both parents gave him a real passion for missions, particularly in China. And at the age of five, if you had asked a young Hudson what he wanted to do with his life, he would have said that he wanted to be a missionary when he was older. Even though prayer and Bible reading were a real sort of integral part of his growing up years, he didn't actually become a Christian until he was 17 years old. We've got another picture of him as a young man. And he had tried to imitate the sort of quite radical faith of his parents, but he'd failed. And he'd failed to live up to his sort of parents' standard. And so actually at the age of 17, he was right on the edge of giving it all up. But one day, however, when his mother was away from home, she sensed that she should pray for her son's salvation. And as she prayed, unbeknown to her, Hudson had wandered into his father's library and aimlessly was taking down one book after the other to find some sort of short, interesting passage to read. And it was there that he stumbled upon a tract given the fundamentals of becoming a Christian. And as he read, he came across the words, the finished works of Christ, the finished works of Christ. And almost at that very moment in which his mother, who was miles away, prayed for him, he saw that it was by the finished work of Christ that we're to be saved. And so there in his father's library, he knelt down and he submitted his life to Jesus. Even though it is God who saves ultimately our children, Don't underestimate the influence of godly parents. 
I think society is increasingly suggesting that parents have less and less and should have less and less influence on their kids. Um, friends, school, the internet, social media, teachers, church youth groups, that sort of thing, are all seen as more powerful influences on our kids than parents are. And because we're living in this sort of relativistic culture, um, everything is thrown at us that we should let our kids decide for themselves. We should back off. We should never pressure our kids into making a decision. decision. And it's like parents can end up bowing to the pressure of our culture rather than steering our kids along certain paths. And so I'm not talking about rigid, forced, sort of demanding religion, but rather godly, gentle, but determined leading to Jesus. The Bible time and time again suggests that it's the parent or the parents or the carers who should take first responsibility for teaching their kids about Christ. Uh, Just one passage we could go to, Ephesians 6 verses 1 to 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on earth. Fathers, Do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. There's two words there that do not fit in our culture. Training and instruction. Beware the hands-off approach in our parenting. Recently, a team of researchers led by a guy called Christian Smith suggests the key to seeing teenagers come through into adulthood as disciples of Jesus is their parents. Mothers and fathers who practice what they preach and preach what they practice are far and away the major influence related to adolescents keeping their faith into their 20s, according to the new findings in this study. So a few stats here. Just 1% of teens aged 15 to 17 raised by parents who attached little importance to religion were highly religious in their mid to late 20s. And in contrast, 82% of children raised by parents who talked about faith at home, who attached great importance to their beliefs and were active in their congregations, were themselves religiously active as young adults. Other factors such as youth ministry or the clergy or service projects or religious schools pale into comparison. So it basically says this, no other conceivable causal influence comes remotely close to matching the influence of parents on the religious faith and practices of youth. Smith said in a recent talk sharing these findings of the study, he says parents just dominate. So parents, if you're a parent in the room, let me just gently say to you, let's not back off. Culture says we should give our kids all that freedom to choose whatever they want. But God has given us a responsibility to train and instruct our kids. Let's do that through our lives. Let's do that through our words. Let's do that through our prayers in the most convincing ways that we can muster. And it's also a great reminder if you're not a parent here today. Because we parents need your support. We need you to help us because... The job at times can feel very, very demanding and difficult. We need your prayers. We need you to help us in the hugely difficult task of discipling our children. So first of all, teenage conversion, massive thing in the life of Hudson Taylor. Let me just really get to the nitty gritty here. Let me talk about messy relationships. 
After his conversion, Hudson began to prepare to leave for Christ uh, for, for China, and he studied medicine in order to provide sort of work for him when he got there, and it was a means of connecting and serving with the Chinese people. And so, and he also, at the same time as studying in medicine, he began a strict regime of self-denial to prepare for a life of hardship. So his diet was meagre. The attic room that he lived in was bereft of all sort of comforts. He refused to ask for overdue wages. And his thinking was this. When I get out to China, I shall have no claim on anyone for anything. My only claim will be on God. How important, therefore, to learn before leaving England to move man through God by prayer alone. And so he had a great attitude. This whole career and his whole preparation was geared up to going and being this missionary to China. And I love it. I've got friends that um, they've been very careful in the way they raise their children um, uh, uh, in terms of their diets because they felt called to go to a country where the sort of things they'd be able to eat and drink would be very different from this country. And so they only gave their kids water and they only gave their kids very simple food. And it was all to do with making the jump into another culture easier. Um, I've got another friend who chose to work for a multinational company in order that they feel called to the Middle East. They just know that the ticket to the country that will be very difficult to reach for a Christian will be through the company that has a headquarters in the sort of very Middle Eastern country they want to go to. So I love that thinking, preparation, thinking ahead. But Hudson had a whole area of his life that he found really difficult control to control, and it was his love life. And frankly, it was just a mess. So he was engaged twice to one lady, but she didn't feel the call to China and thought that he would just grow out of it. But he loved her so much that he just couldn't leave her alone. So they just went back and forth in this relationship. And they were basically unable to decide what to do. He was in love. She didn't feel called. She was waiting for him to mature and grow up. He was like set on going to China and waiting for her to catch up. So in and out they went, engaged twice. Eventually he moved to China, still feeling deeply for her, but eventually turned his attention to another lady who had met briefly while still in England. He hastily proposed to her instead, and she initially accepted his proposal, but then turned him down. And so while pining over her, he met another lady called Maria Dyer, who he proposed to several months later, only to be turned down once again by her overzealous guardian, a lady called Miss Aldersley. And Miss Aldersley thought Hudson was uneducated, unordained, unconnected and uncouth or rude. And so behind the back of Miss Aldersley, who's this guardian to this lady called Maria, Hudson arranged to secretly meet her in the presence of another missionary. Miss Aldersley and her supporters found out about this secret meeting and all hell broke loose. So Hudson was threatened with a lawsuit by his fellow missionaries and also by a a member of the clergy with physical violence for going near this girl. And all hope seemed lost. So Maria was placed under house arrest and demanded that she wasn't allowed to leave until she repented of her feelings for Hudson. Somehow, though... She managed to escape the house. They met again secretly and got engaged. 
And eventually, after a long saga, it was Maria's uncle back in England who gave his consent for her to get married. And they were wed in 1858. And here are the happy couple. (laughs) So I give you all those sort of details. I I mean, it's amazing reading about this great guy. Number one, even our heroes are ungodly at times. So this guy, multiple engagements, secret meetings, he just strikes me as someone who's just desperate to find someone who'd love him and marry him. And this is God's chosen instrument for saving China. You know, King David in the Old Testament also had a string of messy relationships. He managed to sleep with his best friend's wife, get her pregnant, kill Um, his best friend, and then deny the whole thing when confronted by a prophet of God. But he was still used by God. And I know personally many people who have struggled in this area, the area of relationships. And it's because relationships are complicated. Endless questions about who to date, broken engagements, bad choices of partners, people unable to stay single for very long just when they need to, partners who make bad choices that impact on you. I know as I look back quite a few years now to my wife and I when we were still going out and dating, we had many, many hours of working out whether we were the right people for each other. And we actually broke up at one point and we had a lot of repenting to do to each other. We had a complete inability to deal with conflict, which made life very stressful and difficult. And the reality is bad judgment calls in relationships have left people far from God and in a bad place. And I would love all of you that are still in all of that to be very wise and learn from others around you. But you know what, whether you absolutely get this area sorted first time or whether like Hudson Taylor, you make an absolute mess of it, the way back is always the same. Even in the messiness of relationships, God is simply after humility, an awareness of your need and a repentant heart. It's in this place that grace can come afresh to us. Even today, for some of you just think, oh, my love life is a mess or where is my love life, or whatever it is, there is grace for you. Proverbs 3 verse 34, he, talking about God, mocks proud mockers, but gives grace to who? The humble. And so your qualification for ministry isn't perfection in relationships, it's humility. And secondly, it's amazing how easy we can be strong in lots of areas, but weak in one. Usually there's one issue that undermines all the hard work, and it's often in the area of sex and relationships. Ironically, it was Hudson Taylor who declared this. He said, Christ is either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. And I wonder when he said that, he was looking back to his sort of messiness in his relationships with regret, and he's trying to apply that truth to his life. So I just want to ask you really gently this morning, what are your no-go areas? Like the areas of your life where perhaps you're doing really well on a whole ton of things, but you know there's just one thing that tends to trip you up, one thing that you find difficult. Where are you particularly vulnerable if you're not even aware of what that one thing is? You know, sometimes it's helpful to step back. 
Is it relationships? Is it to do with your purity? Is it bitterness? Is it anger? Is it jealousy? Is there something going on at work? Is there something going on in your marriage which makes things really difficult? You know, in Mosaic, we have discipleship triplets. They're sort of groups of three people where um, over time they become your friends and they become friends you can trust with this sort of stuff. And I would encourage all of you, if you're in a triplet, to have this conversation. To not just talk about all the great stuff, but what's the, what's the area I need your help in? And if you're not in a discipleship triplet, then you just need to ask. Ask someone in your mission group, your mission group leader, or ask Dan or any of the leaders here. We'd love to help connect you because we all need a safe place to talk about this stuff. And thirdly and lastly, um, let me just draw some things about contextualization and calling from the life of Hudson Taylor. Hudson sailed for China with the Chinese Evangelistic Society on September the 19th, 1853, at the age of 21. So he goes to China, no formal training in theology or missions, but fortunately he learns the language quickly and in his first two years in China, he engages in about 10 extensive evangelistic journeys up country. He also makes some radical decisions to best reach the Chinese. He would have dressed a bit like this picture. So he decided to dye his hair and plait it with a false pigtail at the back and he dressed like a local. And at the time... All his fellow missionaries mocked these attempts to reach the Chinese. But he found it greatly helped him in his mission. It was actually a very biblical way of thinking about missions. The posh word for it is contextualization. And it's simply adapting the way that you talk about the gospel in order that indigenous people might hear it. And the Apostle Paul, 1800 years earlier before had made the same discovery when he was trying to make converts of Jews and Gentiles in Greece. In 1 Corinthians 9, he says, to the weak, I became weak. Sorry, to the weak, I became weak. To win the weak, I've become all things to all men so that by all possible means, I might save some. All things to all men in order to see some saved. And this was Hudson Taylor. He knew he had to move towards the Chinese, to see them accept Christ. And it just made me, as I looked at Hudson's life, um, I just did wonder just briefly, what does this mean for us at Mosaic? Like, who has God called you, Mosaic South, to reach? And where can we move towards those people rather than sit back and wait for them to come? I wonder what this question means for your mission groups and how you do mission locally to certain people groups and to certain places. I love the fact that um, in Holbeck, you guys are starting a monthly service from September. And I love the fact that you've thought very carefully about what happens in that service. The whole idea is you don't do a church service to meet your needs, but rather you want a service that acts like as a vehicle to get the gospel to those that most need it. Now, I think it's a brilliant way to, to reach those that need to hear about Jesus. But I do wonder for your mission groups and for this meeting, what does that question look like? Anyway, in July 1860, Hudson and Maria sailed for England, having resigned from the mission agency that they were involved with. They had some issues with the way that their agency handled money, and the agency was actually in a lot of debt. And so they resigned there, and uh, actually at the time, Hudson was seriously ill with hepatitis. And what seemed like a setback of having to come back home actually gave rise to one of the most decisive events in his life. You see, what happened for the next four years he was in the UK, his desire or his burden for China grew immensely. 
He couldn't shake the idea that this new mission agency was needed, but he didn't know whether he could lead it or not. But it's in this place that God birthed in Hudson Taylor a vision that would change the history of the largest nation on earth. The moment came on on a Sunday in June 1865 on Brighton Beach down in the south. And he describes it like this. On Sunday, June 25th, 1865, unable to bear the sight of a congregation of a thousand or more Christian people rejoicing in their own security, while millions were perishing for lack of knowledge, I wandered out onto the sands alone in great spiritual agony, and there the Lord conquered my unbelief, and I surrendered myself to God for this service. I told him that all the responsibilities as to issues and consequences must rest with him. And that as his servant, it was mine to obey and to follow him. His to direct, to care for, to guide me and those who might labor with me. Need I say I found peace at once. Uh, uh, Peace at once flowed into my burdened heart. There and then I asked him for 24 fellow workers, two for each of 11 inland provinces, which were without a missionary and two for Mongolia. And writing the petition on the margin of my of the Bible I had with me, I returned home with a heart enjoying rest such as it had been a stranger to for months. And that was the birthplace of the China Inland Mission. Taylor was 33 years old. The missionaries that they would bring in to their sort of group would have no guaranteed salaries. They were not to appeal for funds. They were to adopt Chinese dress and they were to press the gospel into the interior. And so this was the group, May 26th, the following year, Hudson and Maria and their children sailed with the largest group of missionaries that had ever sailed to China. God loves to call us into mission. Many of us, it won't be as dramatic as Hudson Taylor's call. It perhaps won't be to move to the opposite side of the world. Yet all of us have been called to play our part in reaching Leeds and beyond. Now, what's fascinating is when you look at the call of a hero, and it's often very dramatic like this. I know for most of us in the room, when we think about our own lives and what we are called specifically to, we can feel it's a little bit underwhelming. And for many of us, we can often feel like, actually, I don't really know. God's not spoken to me like he spoke to this guy. And I just wanted, as I finish, just to take a couple of moments to help you see the ways in which God calls us to certain things. Because I think my hope is you find it very releasing and also very helpful for what God has called you to do here in Leeds. So I think I've got about six things really quick. Number one, God loves to use a holy discontent and our passions to call us to certain things. When I got converted at 14, I got saved into a local church, which, to be honest, was going through a big church split, was not in a great place. And it wasn't somewhere that I could bring my friends. And it was in that place that I'm sure God birthed in me a passion for the local church and and for the local church to be a place that people from outside of it can be welcomed in. And so God gave me a holy discontent. I was dissatisfied with what I was experiencing and it forced me to think about what I could do to make a difference. And perhaps some of you have that same sense of holy discontent. On the other hand, it may be that God's given you certain passions in life that, and it's your passions that are, in, a, in one sense, your calling. So some of you are passionate about music 
Some of you, it's architecture. Some of you, it's caring for the elderly. For some of you, it's driving a bus. For others of you, it's being a joiner. For some of you, it's radio presenting. You know, there are just so many different things in the room. And God often calls us to the things that we feel passionate about. So if you don't know what you're called to, a great question is, what am I passionate about in life? What things do I feel sort of stirred about? And God's put that passion in you to make a difference in the world. Secondly, sometimes calling comes just through normal prayer and Bible study. And it's as you pray, it's as you read the Bible that you get this sense of conviction or burden for a certain thing or people or place. I know I've spoken to many teachers who feel this burden on them to be a father or a mother to the children in their school. They see it as an amazing opportunity to gather these kids and be a good influence on them. It's a burden. I know many of you are involved in different charitable work. And for you, work is not about so much the salary you receive. It's about doing something meaningful. It's about bringing change. It's about bringing hope. And it's, it, God has just placed that burden on your hearts. And that's what you're called to do. I know I spoke to an entrepreneur just two weeks ago who's just starting a new business. And for him, it's about making the best product and service in their sector. And they've got this, this huge dream to make a difference in the sector that they're involved with. It's a kingdom value. And others of you just maybe from a young age have had certain nations on your heart, certain people groups on your heart that you just know. Like I come alive when I'm with this people or when I pray for these people or when I visit this place. Thirdly, God sometimes just speaks really directly. We find that in Acts 16, Paul doesn't quite know where to go. And he has this vision of a, of a Macedonian man calling him to reach his people. And some of you have experienced perhaps God speaking in a way that perhaps is a bit more dramatic but nevertheless is just the same as the other things that I've mentioned. Uh, I've got a friend who moved to another country in order to plant a church and they were wondering whether or not to go. And just before they left to visit a certain country, his daughter, who was aged 10, had a sort of quite a significant dream and she dreamt of the house they were going to live in when they moved. And this house was a normal house except at the top in the attic. It had a very specific shaped window. So they went to the country that they were thinking of moving to. They went to an estate agent to look at potential houses they could rent. And in the window of the estate agent, the 10-year-old said, that's the house I dreamt of. And it had the particular shaped window at the top. And they felt, God, you know, this was God's way of saying, this is where I want you. I've got another friend who has uh, now come back but church planted for about 10 years in Russia. And at the age of 16, in a church meeting like this, the man preaching picked him out in the crowd and said, please weigh this carefully, but I believe God is calling you to plant churches in Russia when you're older. And at the age of 16, he gets that call from God. And God loves to do that. God-given direction. Some of you just know God's spoken to you in a really clear way. Fourthly, sometimes it's like apostolic or pioneering vision that calls you to do a certain thing. You find that in Acts 11, Barnabas gets Saul to come to, Saul the who becomes Paul to come to Antioch. And it's like there's a bigger cause, there's a bigger vision and you get caught up in that. I know Chris and Lisa Mason who were with us here at Mosaic, they've planted the Oak Church in West Leeds. For them, it was as we talked as a team, we said, where can we go in Leeds? We want to reach further. And we said to Chris, will you go? 
go? Will you go to West Leeds? And he very much like said, yes, we feel that is, is what God wants for us. He got caught up in a bigger vision. And then uh, fifthly, your call can come simply through the Great Commission. In Matthew 28, Jesus commands his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations. Philip goes to Samaria in Acts 8, not because he gets a word, not because um, uh, anyone asks him to go, but rather he hears the Great Commission and says, that's the place I want to go. Uh, I spoke to a couple just three weeks ago who are just about to buy their first house. And I love it. What they've done is they've looked at a map. They've said, where are people from Mosaic not? And where's a fairly... Uh, underprivileged area, we are going to move there. And we'd like to, over time, draw people into that community and make a difference. Why are they doing it? Were they asked? No. Has God spoken to them? Not really. They're doing it because they believe in the Great Commission. I love it. And sixthly and lastly, sometimes it's just circumstances. God uses the things that happens to us to give direction. Perhaps it's a new job. Perhaps it's a relocation. Perhaps you start a family. Perhaps you're given a project. Perhaps you join a club. Just whatever happens in life and literally what is before you is the thing God wants to call you to. And as with all of these things, all these callings are best tested in community. Ask your friends, people that know you well, what they think. Ask your leaders before making any massive decisions. If you're moving, find a local church to be called into. Like Taylor, from that place, put your trust in God to provide the resources you need to accomplish what is before you. Taylor's favorite saying was this, God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supplies. Why don't you say that with me? God's work done God's way will never lack God's supplies. I would love you to apply that truth that we have a good, good father in heaven who loves to answer our prayers, who loves to supply all our needs. I'd love you to apply that to the place of your calling, to the place that you feel you're meant to be right now. Where are the sort of some of the impossible things before you? Where do you need him to move? I want to sort of, I would love you to walk away this morning with faith afresh in your hearts for the places you're meant to be, the people you're called to reach, and God's ability to meet your every need in that place and work miracles. So listen, let me wrap up with this. Five years after that call on Brighton Beach, Hudson Taylor then went through the most difficult part of his life where he had to rely on God's supplies like no other. His son Samuel died in January. Then in July, just a few months later, Maria gave birth to a son, Noel, who died two weeks after that. And then to crown Hudson's sorrows on July 23rd, so just a couple of weeks after, Maria also died of cholera. She was only 33 years old. Hudson was 38. And they had four living children at the time. A year later, Taylor sailed back home to England, and while he was there, he remarried. And he married this lady, Jenny Falding, and he would spend the rest of his life with her. They married for 33 years until she died in 1904, the year before he did. They had a son and daughter beside the four children that he had had from Maria. And during one period from 1881 to 1890, Jenny was in England, not China, while Hudson travelled to China twice, and it took about six months to get to China by boat. And they were separated for six years during that season. He lived to see the horrible Boxer Revolution in China, which was a big war against any foreign influence. Um, 
the China Inland Mission lost more members than any other agency. So just in a short period of time, 58 adults and 21 children were killed. I don't know if you can imagine that, but that's two-thirds of this room that were a tight team were all massacred in this revolution. In February um, 1905, Hudson Taylor sailed for China for the last time. After a tour of some mission statement, uh, stations, he died at the age of 73, and he was buried with his first wife and his four children who had died in China. And ironically, the cemetery that he was buried in was destroyed as part of the Cultural Revolution, and today an industrial building stands over the site. At the time of Hudson's death, the China Inland Mission was an international body with 825 missionaries living in all 18 provinces of China with more than 300 mission stations, 500 local Chinese helpers and 25,000 Christian converts. This guy had a massive impact on China. Today, there are 1,600 missionaries working for what is now known as OMF International. This year marks the 150-year anniversary of the mission that Hudson Taylor founded. In 1900, there were 100,000 Christians in all of China, and today there are probably around 150 million. 100,000. 150 million. Let's use Hudson Taylor's remarkable story and vision to inspire us today. My favorite saying out of all the things that Hudson Taylor ever said is this. I found that there are three stages in every great work of God. First is impossible. And it's difficult. And it's done. First it's impossible, then it's difficult, then it's done. And I would love for you to pray for each other, to believe that in the places you feel called to, for any of you that are parents, knowing the massive challenge that is in front of you, to those of you who've got massive questions about what's next in your life, for those of you thinking relationships and just that whole area feels difficult, I would love you to know that in every great work that God does, it does seem impossible to start off with. And that causes us to fall on our knees in weakness. And then it is difficult. Some of you might be in the difficult stage right now, but then it gets done. And so uh, to finish, I'd love you just with the people that you're sat with, just to take a moment to pray for one another. And it might be... Uh, that you're a guest here today and you might just want to just sort of take a bit of time to reflect by yourself and you can do that. But for the rest of us, I'd love you to perhaps just think, what's the bit from today that just is the thing that's applicable to me? And how can you apply this great saying uh, that God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply? How does that impact your life now? 